welcome to the Exhibit A podcast. We are on, and we have today a woman who came into the San Gabriel Valley, the city of Pasadena, and just shook up the world, and that is Cynthia Flynn. How are you today? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. I say that because about two years ago, I was sitting in a provisor's meeting, and everybody's talking about you. And they go, you know who she is, right? You know who she is, Cindy Flynn, right? She's just really an up-and-coming star. She's everywhere. And then finally you, uh, you came to our provisors meeting. And for the viewers out there who don't know, provisors is a networking group, and there's a bunch of them here in Pasadena. You attended ours, and sure enough, uh, everybody was impressed by you, including myself. Uh, and then we've had a couple of lunches together. We've gotten to know each other. So today we're going to talk about some topics that are going to be interesting to our client base because a lot of our clients own businesses and you're an employment attorney in fact you're a very impressive employment attorney and uh, i've chosen two topics if we could get to the second one we will but the first one is going to be what employees need to know about 1099 employees or employers i should say if you're owning a company what you need to know about 1099s because that landscape has changed and the second one, if we get to it, is the new rules regarding sexual harassment training, because that's been a big wave in, in business as well. But before we do that, I also want to introduce my partner, the magnificent Casey Martikarena. Uh She's a very experienced, certified family law specialist, and the two of you know each other from Provisors as well, right? Yes. Um Cindy's known as the queen of provisors, or at least I call her the queen of provisors. <laughs> Too kind. <laughs> well, we're going to get into that in a second, but go ahead. Um, thanks for having me, Don. Okay. Again. Okay. Well, let's talk about Cindy a little bit. Now, Cindy, you grew up in the great Orange County, didn't you? Yes, I did. Okay. I know that not necessarily from reading about you, but from when we met. What city did you grow up in? Uh, Rancho Santa Margarita, so okay. South Orange County. Okay. And then uh, I know that the two of you have something in common, that you both went to UC Irvine. Yeah. Uh-huh, yes. You guys ever talk about that? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it produces good good attorneys apparently. And uh and then I know that you've been in business uh well, actually let's talk about your your what you majored in at Irvine because I found this very interesting. You majored in criminology, law and society and psychology and social behavior. Um, were you thinking at one point like a law enforcement career or, or what? No, I always knew I was going to be in law, and it was the closest law-related oh. uh, major that they had, so that's why I picked it. Okay. Well, that does make sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I always say that people that are lawyers really like government. They like to know about politics, you know, so either, you know, a political science or something related to government is really good. And then psychology and social behavior is really, really good for the practice of law, isn't it, Casey? It is, in fact. I got my degree at UC Irvine in psychology and social behavior. I loved studying it, and uh, I use it every single day as a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, I know it. I've seen how you uh, cross-examine child custody evaluators with your background. <laughs> so here's the thing that I, that I find interesting about you, Cindy, is, is that you and I have something in common, that we love business, right? You are a business owner, and you love reading self-help books uh, when we talk, uh, we always talk about our favorite books, and you were so sweet to send me uh, one of your favorite books. Uh, where did you get that? <laughs> uh, the love of books or the business? Just- I mean, you, you, I think you like me. You like the idea of how businesses work mm-hmm. and how do you make them you know, profitable and, and you know, just the, the whole science of it. Yeah, so I actually grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. My parents ran a printing company in the 80s. 
And I got to go in as a kid and, you know, staple papers and fold brochures and send out stationery for clients. And I got to see firsthand not only what it was like to run a business, but what it was like to have employees. <laughs> and uh, that didn't turn you away. No, <laughs> I wanted to. I really wanted to help the small business owner. And you know, unfortunately for my parents, they went through bankruptcy and divorce, and um, a lot of these employment issues, business issues, tore them apart. I wasn't a lawyer at the time to help them, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I knew pretty early on I wanted to be a lawyer. So. In high school, I started working at an employment law firm, was there eight years, all through college, all through law school, and then got out, worked for a few firms, and started my own practice. When did you start your own practice? About five and a half years ago. Okay. You just said something that we're going to have to bring you back, and you talked about your parents going through a divorce and owning a business, and that's a topic in and of itself Mm -hmm. that we need to put that on the bookmark, because that's a really interesting one. Sad, but it needs to be discussed. Um, you also, and Casey, tell me if I'm being bad on this or not, okay? But you have perhaps the very best elevator speech that I've ever heard. Huh. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> give it to us. All right. So my name is Cindy Flynn. My firm is Hackler Flynn & Associates, and I run an employment defense law firm with seven women attorneys, two women paralegals, and a male receptionist. Beautiful. I love it. Okay. So on your webpage, I noticed, because I looked at it today, is that you've got a picture of your uh, your team. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a man in there. Is mm-hmm. that your receptionist? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So, you know what? You get away with that, but uh, I always say, you know, I hope that you treat him nicely. Okay? Of course. So, okay. Well, let's talk about today's topic, okay? At least topic number one, which is going to be what employers need to know about 1099 employees. Okay, and in the old days, at least, you know, my old days, not yours necessarily, you always heard people talking about, yeah, he's a 1099 employee, I don't have to pay him as much, or I don't have to do the taxes. And a lot of people that were 1099 employees felt like they were self-employed, and they thought it was the best of both worlds. There's a lot of people that like doing that. Uh, well, the landscape's changed. Maybe you could describe uh, how it's changed and, and when that took place. Sure, absolutely. So last year, a big California Supreme Court decision came down known as Dynamex. And that basically says the presumption is that everyone who works for you is an employee. And in order to prove otherwise that they're a 1099, you have to prove A, B, and C of this test. And every business is having a problem, well, most businesses are having a problem with Part B of the test, which says that if you are hiring someone to help you in your business and they are performing work that the business entity does, the same type of work, they need to be an employee. Wow. Okay. So um, with respect to... the test, is there more things that the court would look? I didn't know that it came from a California Supreme Court. I thought it was a modification of the code, the, the labor code. It actually came from a, a California Supreme Court case. Yes, last April. Okay. So it's a year now. Okay. And so are there factors that the court's going to weigh to determine whether or not somebody is a employee or is it just strict is a strict liability type of thing. Well, that's just it. I mean, we used to have the 20-factor IRS test, yeah. and you know there are so many jurisdictions in California that an employee can go down, right? And it would depend which jurisdiction you're in. If you're in front of the EDD, it's a little different than the labor commissioner. And different uh, jurisdictions would have different um, – hold weight on the factors a little bit differently, but you still had that basic 20-factor test. Now, though – 
part A of the test is whether or not the person has that independent control. So that's still a factor, right, in, in hiring an independent contractor. Could you give us an example of what that means? Yeah. It's, you know, if you hire a CPA to help you, you're not telling them how to do their ta- how to do your taxes, right? They ha- exercise that independent control and direction, and that would qualify as a proper independent contractor as, as far as part A goes. And then part B, like I mentioned, if using the CPA example, if you are a CPA firm hiring a CPA to help you, like even if it's just during tax season, um, that is your business. And then the person you're hiring is working on that same line of work, that same business, then it goes to prove that they are an employee of the company, not that they cannot be a 1099. And then part C is... The last factor, which says that the person working for you is in in an independently established trade. So, like, uh, CPA firms are generally an independently established trade. They have a license, that sort of thing. But, again, if you are a CPA firm hiring a CPA, even if it's just during your busy season for a few months to help you, you're going to run up against some hard, hard facts to prove. Cindy, I have a question for you. <clears throat> Excuse me. For our business owner clients, uh, I, I've heard a lot of people say, well, they're an individual, but they're incorporated, so it's okay. Um, does, that, does the fact that an individual that, you're, that is doing work for you uh, is incorporated, does that shield them from this law? Does that shield the employer from this law? That's a great question, and no, it does not. It does not matter. We've seen... EDD auditors try and say that corporations, big corporations that you and I have heard of, should be an employee. And they literally have hundreds of people working for them. So if it's just one person who's incorporated, you're going to have a lot bigger of a battle to fight rather than a giant corporation. Okay. I want to get into that a little deeper, but and so remind me, please. Because uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good area. But it, what are the detriments, benefits, detriments of a 1099 employee versus uh, not for those who may be thinking about starting a business? Mm-hmm. So typically speaking, you know, an employee is a little bit more costly. You're paying for their workers' comp. You're paying their taxes. You're paying for unemployment insurance, all of those things. And on average, we see that employers spend an extra 17 to 24% when you're paying someone as an employee versus an independent contractor. But the risk involved in paying someone incorrectly or misclassifying them is is just exorbitant. Huge. Yeah, go go with that because I I think I've heard that before. How bad could it get? So, um, with a misclassification case, you know, not only do you have the fact that the person should have been an employee versus an independent contractor, but you're also on the hook, most likely for overtime and sick leave and um, breaks and lunches and a lot of wage and hour violations are also involved. So we've seen, you know, a three or $4,000 actual claim in damages can be upwards north of hundreds of thousand dollars because you're paying for the penalties, the back taxes, attorney's fees for plaintiff, and then, of course, you need to hire our firm to help with the defense. And it seems that the more that it gets litigated, and if you're on the losing end, the, the more expensive it's going to get, right, right? Right, Yeah. So, Cindy, I assume that if uh, an employee were to 
get through the threshold A, B, and C of this test, they're now deemed an employee and the employer is liable as the employer would be with any other employee. What types of cases are we seeing? Are we talking sexual harassment cases? Are we talking, you know, injury at work cases? What types of cases are we seeing? That's, so misclassification itself is a big issue. Okay. So just having the person be misclassified. And it's most closely related to wage and hour law. So breaks, lunches, unaccounted for, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of liability, too, on business owners for sexual harassment. Like if you have a receptionist and she interacts every day with the FedEx driver and, you know, there's a, there could be a something there um but the the liability is just huge for employers in california and so anytime you are considering hiring anyone make sure you run it by your lawyer let let me ask you this is a little bit of a hypo hypo i guess is uh, a gentleman's uh working as a uh, cpa for a cpa firm during Mm -hmm. tax season he thinks he's a 1099 the employer thinks that he's a 1099 employee but during the time that he's in the office, he's harassing the receptionist. And, uh, you know, there's a suit that involves the two of them. Uh, so I, I think I know the answer to this, but does the employer have liability on both sides in, the, in that case? Assuming yes. that he's Yeah, so, so there could be also this tort liability that's involved as well, working within the scope of, of, the, of the company. Right. Okay. All right. So... Uh, Going back to our question about what employ- employers can do, I know that we're talking about when uh, single people are incorporated, but they're only really working for one company and they're working within that, that realm. Uh, are there things that uh, you would advise companies to make sure that these people are doing that would distinguish them from being employees, I mean, incorporation is a fact. I mean, it's not going to be ignored. I'm going to, I'm going to guess, just not a, a heavily weighted fact, right? But there's, there's other things I presume that could be done. Yeah, I mean, uh, but after Dynamex, it's very difficult to make a case that somebody is a proper independent contractor if they are in, within the same line of work. So if you are hiring like a specialist, you know, it's always good not to label it as an independent contractor agreement, but an agreement between two corporations, you know. So so there are things you can do to protect yourself. And, of course, it is better to pay a company than a person individually. All of that stuff still helps. Mm. But at the end of the day, we've seen lawsuits with, you know, uh a person who came to the company and said, I want to be an independent contractor. Here's my independent contractor agreement. Here's the name of my company. I'm going to invoice you. And now he's suing for $350,000. Yeah. So if you want to sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about if that person uh, advertises on the web, has a web page? He does. Okay. What if that person has other clients, works for several other uh, companies, and the person isn't in the direct employment uh doesn't do the exact work but it's more of like of a vendor type of a situation so all of that stuff helps and that's where we fight tooth and nail on every issue you know but the thing is is that smaller businesses especially startups people who you know don't have the means to really fight it out in court on whether or not someone is properly classified i mean you could be in court for two or three years you guys know as litigators and how expensive that gets so yeah one of the things that uh, Casey and I 
know is is that litigation could get very very expensive and sometimes it's just worth you know paying that money up front and doing the right thing um yeah I, we've seen lots of cases with our clients taking kind of making some wrong decisions and paying a lot more than what they should so that that makes sense so you know the uh the idea that a, a startup company uh has vendors should every vendor be looked at as as potential employees then well, every independent contractor should be. You know, we always recommend vendor compliance agreements so that oh. if you are hiring a staffing company to help you, you know, um, who pays your the payroll taxes, who helps, you know, provide bodies for your company, make sure you have a vendor compliance agreement with them that they are taking out taxes, that they are paying everyone properly as an employee, and that and so that would cover you more so. Okay. Now, you're a believer in employers having insurance. Yes. Okay. <laughs> what kind of insurance should the basic company have? Let's say it's a startup company. It's a video marketing company, and they're just starting up. What kind of insurance should they have, assuming that they've got employees? So you want, obviously, general liability, directors and officers insurance. Um, and then also something most businesses don't have is EPLI, Employment Practices Liability Insurance. And that can really help save a business. Make sure you get a good policy because there are a lot of policies out there. But if you have a good policy, it, it really will save you in the, in the long run. Okay. Yeah, so insurance is important. Uh, what are other what questions you have? Um, <clears throat> that's a re- those are some really good um, tips. And all I can say is, wow, I feel like there's, there's, there are a lot of bases to cover. And I think yeah. the takeaway is for small business owners, they have to have a strong relationship with an employment attorney. They have to be insured. Um, there are just so many, so, so many areas where one issue can really bankrupt a small business. Yeah, that's right. You know, before we go to the next topic, I want to also say that I noticed by looking at your uh, website that you have a way of interacting with people on the Internet uh, for consultations and, and things. Could you describe that a little bit? Um, yeah, we, um, we offer, you know, consultations for our clients. In fact, we understand that so many are busy running their firms that HR can likely be low on the totem pole of importance. And so we try and make it as convenient as possible for our clients. So we do a lot of phone consultations, Skype consultations. Um, you know, oftentimes we don't even meet our clients in person because we can do everything via phone, email, and conference call. Yeah, I would think that uh, having the convenience to be able to call you or one of your attorneys uh, with a panic attack would Mm -hmm. be very comforting for your clients, right? Yeah, very good. And you prepare, uh, do you prepare uh, employment handbooks? We do. We do everything from employment agreements, employment handbooks, not so much independent contractor agreements anymore, all the way through class action defense lawsuits. cool. Well, now let's turn to our second topic. This one right here is uh, something I'm surprised that we're in now because uh, I'm a lot older than the, the two of you. I've been around the block, you know, and sexual harassment is not new, man. That's not a new topic, okay? Back when I was a, a young kid, man, people were talking about problems in the, in the workforce. But now here we are, 2019, and, you know, we've got new sexual harassment training, and it's because of these things that have surfaced in the public eye. Uh, So what are the new rules for sexual harassment training? So the rule used to be where companies with 50 or more employees had to have their managers trained every two years for sexual harassment. Now it's everyone in the company. So managers and non-managers. 
or supervisors and non-supervisors. So it's it's not the regular staff that needs the training. It's just it is the regular yeah. staff. Yeah. Okay. Everyone in the company. Everybody. Okay. And the rule used to be fifty or more. Now it's five or more. Okay. Every two years. So if uh, somebody's had that training before, too bad. They've got to do it again. Right. And again. Right. Okay. That's interesting. How how would a small business report compliance or? Yeah. Good question. How does that work? So it's really only going to come into play if there's an issue. It's not so much that, you know, California government agencies are going around and checking per se. No auditing. Right. No auditing there. But it is going to be a bigger issue if you have a sexual harassment case in your your company and your employees weren't trained. And you have, like, strict timelines when you need to start training new hires or once you promote somebody – because it's a two-hour training for managers, and it's a one-hour training for everyone else. Okay. Another reason to have somebody like your firm, or so you yes. and somebody like your firm on tow. You know, do these rules, both for the 1099 employee and the sexual harassment training, apply to nonprofits? Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I was on a board that will go unnamed. Actually, a couple of boards, and uh, they're just learning about that. And, you know, it could be scary if they don't comply with these rules because they typically don't have the cash available to pay out things, and a lot of them don't have insurance for to cover this, right? Right, right. We represent a lot of nonprofits as well, and um, we're trying our best to make it as affordable as possible for those nonprofits, and it's our way of, you know, giving back. But there are two ways you can do the training. But it has to be interactive, and it has to be done by either an attorney or someone who's certified. So if you're going to go through the process of doing the training, make sure your person is qualified. Okay. So you're a CPA firm that's got yeah. 20 employees every two years. Uh, they need training. Uh, can it be done by video? So it depends. Um, the video needs to be interactive, so it can't just be a YouTube video where you call everyone in and everyone watches it, it has to be interactive. And so what we recommend and what our firm offers is, of course, in-person training, but also webinars. And the webinars are interactive so that, you know, they have to answer questions and and go through it, the motions. Okay. And, and this is as of 2019? Yes. And every company has until January 1st, 2020 to comply. Oh, God. Okay. My firm's going to be having tra- having you over here pretty soon. <laughs> so, so there's also I, I'm going to imagine that there, you should have a sign up sheet for people that are attending this thing, right? Because you want to prove that it Absolutely. was given. Okay. I'm I'm worried. I'm worried about all those, you know, small businesses that you mentioned. How does this information trickle down to to them? You know, those that's what this podcast is for. Are you kidding you know, me? I mean, I'm thinking about you know the tiny taco shop and you know right. How how does this tra- and it applies to them as well? They have to have sexual harassment training. Yeah. They're five or more empl- yeah. employees. It, right. It, to me, to me, you know, the, it could be so much so that people may not want to go into business when you start putting these rules. But I think that you've uh, said before that you know California is about the worker, right? The, right. The rules are about the worker, not the employer. You know, so. We poor employers. You know, so. <laughs> right. I know. It's true. Well, and, you know, if you are an employee of your company, right, even though you're the owner, you started it, founding partner, you count as an employee of the five. So it's really just you and four other people. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Okay. You're not exempt. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's uh, make this a little lighter subject because you just scared, scared me to death, so I want to change the topic. I looked on the internet and I found an article. 
And you got one for me, too, apparently. So let's see who, who does better here, okay? So I'm going to try to shock you, and you can try to shock me with your, your latest article. This is about a woman whose ex-husband wins the lottery, okay? Uh, now, she had been ordered to pay him spousal support for about six years because she was the primary breadwinner, and this guy apparently wasn't much of a, you know, an earner during the lengthy marriage. A different state than California, I believe. And you may know this case a little bit because this is the guy that won $273 million in a mega millions lottery. And guess what? He left his ticket in the place that he purchased the, uh, you know, the, the, the ticket. And somehow they were able to find him and stuff like that. But that's the type of guy it is. I mean, he leaves his lottery ticket behind, right? <laughs> so this article says that uh, you know, she just wants him to stop receiving spousal support. That's all she asked for, right? You know, she's not asking a lot. Uh, he j- just did the right thing. And uh, apparently, you know, he didn't just offer it up, right? He didn't say, yeah, you don't have to start, uh, stop p- paying me anymore. So, Casey, turning to you, yeah, you know, she comes into your office. What are you going to do? Let me get the facts straight. Wife is paying ex-husband spousal support. That's right. Okay. And husband, ex-husband wins the lottery. Wife says... Okay, I don't want to pay you support anymore. Right. So if we're in California, the analysis is, well, um, uh, are his needs met? And um, can he support, is he now self-supporting? If the answer is yes, what do you there's, think, Cindy? there's an answer. I think yes. <laughs> $273 million so, so if he's self-supporting, um, no longer has a need, then we'll ask the court to terminate spousal support. What about the idea of her going to court and going, I want to not only stop my having to pay him, but how about if he starts paying me? If I'm representing wife on that issue, I'm going to argue that the marital standard of living would have dictated that she should have been receiving support because during marriage, during marriage, he was the higher earner and she perhaps stayed home for some time, devoted to domestic duties and otherwise more of the 4320 factors. Um, if those facts don't exist, then it's a really, really hard thing to Well, you know what they say sell. about the law, right? <laughs> arguing, if, if you don't have the facts, argue the law. If you don't have the law, argue the facts you don't have either. You make it up, right? So, no. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, so anyways, the, the article goes on. Um, she previously told the New York Post that she doesn't plan to go after her ex for, the share, for her share of the million-dollar lump sum. Uh, she says, quote, I'm not going to go after anything. I have morals. I know what I've worked for and everything that I have. I just hope that he does the right thing. What do you think the right thing for him to do in this case? There's a woman that cared for him, right? Really supported him. Was probably a very good woman that, and and he goes and divorces her. Should he give her any part of that, that lottery? Well, I mean. I want your legal analysis here. Le- legal or personal? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're asking should she do should she, should he do the right thing? Yeah, it, it depends what the question yeah. is. I mean, I don't if she doesn't want anything, you know, she's probably better off not taking a cent of his. That would be my that'd be my thought. Okay, but. okay. Well, she was also asked, "Hey, were you interested in like kind of like reconciling?" And we do have cases where people reconcile, and her answer was, "quote He's not appealing to me all of a sudden because he has this money." She's wrong, isn't she? <laughs> no. <laughs> She's dead on. <laughs> well, let's assume that they spent, you know, 30 years, 20 years together and just, you know, they're divorced. But, hey, maybe they have two kids. Maybe those kids are still minors and 
you know, maybe maybe they should benefit from that life, lifestyle as well. Even if they're in college, hey, you know what, Dad? Do the right thing. You need to pay for their college education, their room and board, and all of that. So I think there's, you know, there. I'm interested to know more facts, but, you know, there's there are ways where I think she can step in and say, do the right thing. Okay. Well, <laughs> here's the last fact of this article. The husband was interviewed about the woman's comments, right? And he seemed a little sensitive about the situation. And his quote is, $270 million does not make me appealing to her? That's what she said? And he says, it's over with. I just want her to stop eating my life. And that's the conclusion of this very happy story. Any, any other comments about this? Your legal analysis. Okay, Cindy, tell me about yours now. All right. So I don't know if you guys heard in the news, but um, there was a woman in Arizona who's been in a coma the last 10 ooh, years. Ooh. And had a baby. I know Did this you guys case. hear about I, this? No, I didn't. Yeah. So apparently, um, you know, she's been comatose for 10 years. A nurse at the hospital that she was staying at raped her. And her stomach started getting bigger and bigger. And they thought, oh, well, maybe she's filling up with water. This is odd. No, she gave birth. And she's 29 years old. The suspect is 36. And so I wanted to hear your guys' opinion on the family loss that's going to happen with the child custody issues. Um, well, he's going to have a hard time having custody because he's going to go to prison for life. Right. Okay, because and it's not family law. It's my criminal background. I mean, that's called <laughs> rape, and that's called, uh, at least in California, it's life without the possibility of parole. Okay, uh, but assuming that he was out, you know, what would happen? It was very interesting in, in, cal- in child support laws is there's a case in Texas that Casey knows about, and this is a case where a guy was partying with a, you know, a bunch of people, and he and a lady went to the back room and apparently passed out before they could have you know, any kind of sexual interaction. Well, as the story goes, she copulated him, took the sperm, and then implanted it herself. Now, the question is, in that case, is he liable for child support against, for that child that she later has? And, the law was, yes, he was. Wow. And it's because the government, the, the, the policy is that the government wants a father, right? They want every child to have a father. And you might think that's because the government is so loving, right? <laughs> it's because the government doesn't want to, have to pay for that child, right? right? So, right. so to my, my thing is, is that, number one, he's not going to get custody. Would you agree? Are we talking, are we back at this back, scenario? Yeah, back at the... Well, uh, assuming he's not in jail, I'm going to say he's not going to get visitation, uh, well, not actually, even monitored visits. You know what? It's you know what? I have to say I've had some really egregious scenarios, and you know, mother or father who is acting badly still gets time. Family court. I've rarely, maybe, but one case in extreme circumstance, seen the court say no visitation. So if if the father wanted to push this, I think he may get something. Maybe monitor. Well, here's what the argument I would make for for the mother's family. I assume that the maternal parents would be involved in this as well as siblings. But if he commits violence against mom, he's really committed violence against the child. Um, that's the that's what I would be going with right there. I mean, this is a character that has no business to care for kids because he's he's got such a you know horrific monster mentality, right? So it's a good argument. But as we know, we represent people on both sides. We represent people who are under restraining orders, yeah. but they still see their kids. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, in this, in the, in, the, in the scenario that Cindy brings up, you know, the mother is, you know, in bedridden. I mean, she's in a coma. So I assume there would be some sort of legal representative for the mom that would say, you know, 
I'm standing in the place of mom. I, you know, mom's the joint legal custodian or the legal custodian, and we don't we don't want a relationship. Right. So, right. well, look, we're out of time. What I want to do is thank both of you because I know Casey actually came from court to do this, and she's going right back to court after this. And you've got a very important appointment after this as well with a client or somewhere. I'm not going to get into your business, but I know that you had dedicated just a little bit of time for us today, and I really appreciate it, Cindy. Please come back, okay? We love this. This was great. Thank you, Don. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on Exhibit A. Exhibit A is produced by David Lindley at the law offices of Donald P. Schweitzer in Pasadena, California. For more information, visit us online at PasadenaLawOffice.com and all social media platforms. 